Welcome to episode 258 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I am Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. It's a special day because we're kicking off a whole series that essentially is going to go on until we die. There's no <laughs> limit on this thing. We're calling it Reform Fundamentals or Fundamentals of the Faith, or it's a primer on all things theology, and we're going to get into that. But everybody should know that we actually don't have a timeline set on this. This is going to be ongoing. I'm sure we'll interrupt it with some question casts and perhaps other episodes of interest, but we just plan on getting after the fundamentals of theology until we're dead. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jesse and I were talking about this and one of the things that you see, like Ligonier does this big survey every year where they survey a bunch of people who call themselves Christian and like 90% of them are actually Aryans and it's just like (laughs) a disaster. And and like none of our, I don't think our listeners are are at that scale at all, but what what we do find is if you go to any reformed Facebook group of any, any significant size, you're going to find people who are just confused about basic things related to reformed theology, particularly, or just Christian theology in general, whether it's not, you know, misunderstandings of how the Trinity works or how Christology works or misunderstandings of what the word faith means. Like we talked about last week. So Jesse and I wanted to do our part as part of the reformed podcastosphere or whatever you want to call it to just sort of like get back to basics, get back to the fundamentals. And so we're just going to do theology out loud in front of you people for um, ever, I guess, until the Lord comes or we die, whichever happens first. So we have a plan, right? Like we have some topics that we set aside that we've been working on to create and kind of curate this series. So it's not haphazard. So we mean that we're going to continue to go through some things, but yes, just as you've come to expect elsewhere, like that one time, spilled a whole bottle of kombucha while we were recording (laughs) and that made it into the episode. This is theology without a net. This is theology that's thoughtful, but you're going to hear it in real time. And so we hope that it'll be a blessing to everybody. But of course, before we can even get there, it's time for some affirmations and denials. So what do you've got this episode? Yeah. So my affirmation is just, it's a good, good uh, seasonal affirmation. You know, this is going to come out, uh, I think October 1st, which is not quite technically fall yet, but we're getting there, especially in New England. The the air is crisp and the orchards are orching. That's not a word. Uh, But I'm affirming hard apple cider. So there's this little, there's this little uh, orchard. I suppose the orchard's not little, but it's like a, like a local orchard uh, right near us called Patch Orchard or Patches Orchard. I don't even remember the name of Patch Orchards. And they make really good, hard, dry apple cider. So uh, my wife and I, you know, took a little bit of time and went down there and uh, we ate some some uh, cinnamon sugar apple donuts, and I got some hard cider, which I've been enjoying. But yeah, if you've never tried hard apple cider, then you should do that. And don't get like, not Legit. that there's anything wrong with like the like the mass produced, you know, like apple cider you buy at like the gas station or the liquor store. But like, find a local apple orchard that makes their own hard apple cider. It is going to be way better than anything that you're going to get that's kind of mass produced. It's just, it's fresher. It's crisper. It's, it's usually got its own little hint. This one had, because we're in New Hampshire, everything this time of year has to have just a hint of maple syrup. So it's got, it's got that hard sort of, sort of tart edge to it, but with just a little bit of a finish on it, that's a little bit nice. sweet. So it's really good. So I'm affirming hard apple cider. I thought you were going to say, because you live in New Hampshire, everything has a tint of rebellion in it. That's true too. <laughs> Live free or die, baby. Look it up, people. Yeah, that's a great recommendation. I wonder if many people have had like the pure unpasteurized cider. If you can go to a place that makes it, again, their grocery store is fine, but there are lots of places this time of year that are, you know, crushing the apples, pressing those suckers down. That is legit. In the adventure that is my life where I try to ferment everything possible, I've now (laughs) also moved into, which really... Is the Christian life because God wants to ferment all things. But True. In, I'm looking at you, John MacArthur. Anyway, <laughs> in addition, I've started now with kombucha and I just made some apple cinnamon kombucha, which I hope is going to turn out delicious. Kind of like a fall twist on fermented tea. You'll have to let me know how your desk likes it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is part of my thought is making it yourself is more cost effective. I will feel better if I spill that all over the desk 
if it's something that I made that I didn't spend like an arm and a leg on. At the it's true. Store. Although you probably spent an arm and a leg on that desk and I can't imagine that's going to be good for the desk. <laughs> well, again, people, some of you listeners know if they've heard that, that what was that episode? That's <laughs> a long time ago. It was now. a long time ago. It's had to have been in double in digits catalog. for sure. Yeah, it's a deep cut. So the the desk I have, I refinished with the help of a good friend of mine. It has a glass top. When I spilled it, I saw the liquid going underneath the glass. <laughs> and, you know, all this work I'd done to refinish it, it was just tremendous. And you captured it exceedingly well in the audio. I had an experience like that last week, actually. So uh, I've been doing some, some home uh, cleaning and some rearranging some rooms. And so I've been steam cleaning the carpet. So I steam cleaned my office and then literally I'm wrapping up the cord from the steam cleaner <laughs> and I knocked an entire can of beer off of the desk onto the floor. And I was like, oh no, oh no, no, no. But I had a steam cleaner right there. So I just turned it back on and, and hit that spot again. But it was, it was a panic inducing moment. I was like, this is the end. This is, this is how I die. I was just sure it was going to be the end. It was bad, but it was fine. There's something about understanding and seeing the unvarnished human nature when you spill something. <laughs> I know it's yeah, terrifying. I don't know what, yeah. I don't know what it is, but it just changes everything. So I love that affirmation. That's, that's super seasonal. I, and I appreciate that you didn't go pumpkin spice on me. You were kind of more like, listen, I, cause I feel like the apple is like the underappreciated cousin of like the fall season. Pumpkin it's spice true. is like taking over everything. Yeah. Apple is, I mean, apple's a little bit more, all season, like you can get apples year round and it's, it's not unusual to be able to buy, like, at least up here, it's not unusual to be able to like buy apple cider in the grocery store in like, I don't know, like March, but, uh, something about hard apple cider and like getting it at the orchard. There's just something, I don't know, something good about that. It's just like, you feel closer to the garden of Eden when you, when you do it that way. Jesse's just laughing. It is ridiculous. No, I what that. I just said. So Jesse, no, what are I you affirming? That. Are you saying we're close to like the probationary period of? I don't, I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know what that meant, what that was supposed to mean. That was a great segue into like covenant of yeah. law and grace. Let the listener understand. He Let he who has ears <laughs> hear what the, what the podcast host says to the audience. Well, speaking of hearing, here's my affirmation. I'm going book style today. And I know some are going to say like, you're just getting to this book now. How is it taking you so long? Listen, loved ones. I get that. My life has been crazy. I just got to reading this now. I know I'm late to it, although I recognized early on that it was a book of great popularity. So I'm affirming with Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers uh, by Dane C. Ortland. I've just been reading this and it's fantastic. So that's all that needs to be said, I think. it's He's writing in this puritanical style. He's kind of like, I mean this in the best possible way, like I want to be Puritan. In fact, he's he's using a lot of Puritanical works to inform and speak into this understanding. But this book is just entirely about Matthew 11 and Jesus saying, I am gentle and lowly and unpacking what that is. And he makes a strong case that, listen, this is what Christ said about himself in un- speaking about his heart, about his essential nature and in, in a sense about his ministry. And so we ought to spend some time thinking about what that means. This book is like a bomb for the soul. So I, I can't imagine that anybody wouldn't be challenged, interested, and blessed by this reading. So go ahead and check out Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. You know who wouldn't be blessed and challenged by that reading? Who? Apparently John MacArthur and Phil Johnson. Because <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> they did not like that book. Apparently they had some major concerns. It was like a festivist meme where I was like, I got a lot of problems with you people and you're going to hear about it. Oh yeah, that's true. They had a lot of... Um, Grievances. Actually, that's funny you say that because part of the reason why I selected this and put it on my list to read was because of <laughs> Grace to You like drama about this. And I think it's probably a little bit unwarranted because as I'm reading it, he goes to great lengths to say like, yo, hold like not antinomian. Like yeah. he actually expresses like there's a special in a sense, like forness of Christ. This makes sense. Like for us in Christ, that is for the Christian, for the saved, for the redeemed yeah. regenerated. He just, before this passage, he speaks and just like blasts the Pharisees. So he does, I think, actually a great job of balancing it. I think the challenge here, what he's challenging us to say is like, do you perceive Christ this way? That he yeah. is the doctor, so to speak, who loves to go after those who are sick, who are lowly, that that is his jam. That's what he loves to do, that he's made glorious in that very thing. So I think that they were a little bit, they just got fired up over. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like it was, a, it was kind of unmeasured, right? You want to be like, whoa, did this guy do something to you? Like, did he steal? Yeah. Who car? hurt you, John MacArthur? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I think um, this might be a little bit uncharitable, but I, I actually picture the meeting where they decided to do this. where like, John MacArthur was like, hey, Phil, have you heard about this new book, this gentle and lowly book? And, and Phil was like, yeah, yeah, I hear that. It's really good. And John MacArthur was like, I want you to just rip it apart unreasonably. Can you do that? And Phil's like, I can do that. I can do that. Yeah, I can do that. So, I mean, I don't know. I like, I don't know. Uh, eh. It well, seems like it seems like they had some sort of strange axe to grind. Uh, but I can imagine that Dane, uh, Dane C. Ortland just was not concerned. I mean, I know he probably isn't writing this for the money, but I can imagine that when he saw that they posted a critical review, he was like, cha-ching, because... I'm sure a lot more people bought the book because uh, because John MacArthur reviewed it, or it wasn't John MacArthur, but it was on it was on that organization. Yes. So it's like, it may yeah. not even have been Phil Johnson. So don't email me if it wasn't him. I, I don't remember who it was that wrote it. I think I think it might have been him. I can't. It I can't seems like it probably was. It seems like it, that's his kind of jam. But um, but I don't know. But it was on their website, and yeah, yeah, they didn't like that book. But no, yeah, I'm but, sure there's a lot of people who purchased the book and read it to great edification for. Uh, uh, because of that. So I guess God can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line. And yeah, I mean, I can't imagine, I can't imagine how anyone would object to the, like literally just explaining that Christ is gentle and lowly when like he said it himself. Like, it just seems like such a straightforward right. thing, but it's, it's a, essentially about unpacking how radical that statement is or what it actually right. means. So I, I get yeah. it, but this is, a, I guess, again, why I'd recommend it or why I'm affirming with it is everybody should pick it up and read it for themselves. You're all reasonable people read through it and see what's said here. The funny thing is, like you said, if you want to really go after what Mr. Ortland is saying here, then you really kind of have to go after like Thomas Watson and Richard Sibbs, who right. we also quotes yeah. at length. So this is not new. It's not as if this is some kind of yeah. new perspective on this. But I think we can always be bettered by trying to understand who Jesus is. And when we understand him using his own words, that's the best way to really process right. him. So there's something to be said here. It's a really compelling case to examine these words, gentle and lowly. And I do love that it caused a little bit of drama. So I'm yeah. immensely enjoying it. And I find it to be a really strong connection, fidelity, be tightly coupled with the scriptures. And he's, again, he's kind of like a mini like Puritan. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of nice to see somebody writing in that style. And I will say like, if somebody goes to my Goodreads page and maybe people can't see this, but I don't know if other people can see how many highlights you made. There's a ridiculous number of highlights. I made <laughs> like almost obnoxious. I can imagine. I can imagine it's like, it's like there's there's an entire page that's out like highlighted and maybe like one sentence that's not. I can see yeah. that that's how it is for you on this one. Yeah, there there have been a lot of paragraphs where I'm just like, man. And don't you love it? This is the last thing I'll say, and then we can move on. Don't you love it though, when an author who is using lots of resources and using them well, and in this case the Puritans, comes or pulls a Puritan quote that you've never heard before? So yeah. I love that. So I forget who it was. I don't think it was John Flavel, but it was. I have to go back and take a look at my notes. But he was uh, used, pulled a period in quote about how Jesus is love encased in flesh. And I was like, yeah, dang, just that by itself. Like that I know. is a bumper sticker that just should be slapped everywhere. Love encased in flesh. I, yeah. I just think that that's, it's simple enough that I should have come up with that a long time ago. And yet beautiful and profound enough that I would never have arrived at it on my own. Yeah. Like when Shailen says that, uh, that the incarnation is God with eyelashes or whatever it is. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's fingernails that's it that's that's yeah. my jam i have said that sometimes i'll say to people like like jesus we got to think of jesus as like completely purely 100 identified with humanity even now he is human he's like chilling with god the father like blood vessels eyeballs yeah. like toenails like he's yeah. there mm -hmm. he's he's doing the human the fully human truly human only real human thing right now yeah well, Jesse, I'm going to throw a curveball at you because my denial actually kind of leads into our topic for day for today pretty uh, well. So why don't you hit me with your denial and then we'll, uh, oh, we'll gotcha. hit mine on okay. the way into the topic. So this is like, I'm just going to hang out in the adventures in Romans one, but this time it involves me. I mean, Romans one always involves me to some extent because <laughs> uh, aside from God, but God, I'm always living in Romans one, but I texted you a picture yesterday. I happened to just walk into my house and see behind in this massive grove of trees, pine trees, the largest wasp's nest I've ever seen oh, man. in my entire life. It's basically like they build a city up there. But here's what I'm denying. My first inclination, my first human 
natural response was, where is a rock? <laughs> because yeah. I want to throw it at it. And I texted my landlord, who's a, who's a delightful man, who's a Christian man, who's a believer, and just said, hey, I don't know if this is of interest to you, but there's like a giant wasp nest. Not bothering me. Seems totally chill, but I don't want anybody to come upon it, upon it like, you know, accidentally and then get surprised. The first thing he texted back to me was, well, it looks big. Don't throw anything at it. <laughs> <laughs> And that means like, you want to go like, throw something at it even more. Yes, exactly. I would not know but what it is like law. to covet, but for the law. Exactly. So that's just that's just my denial. So just maybe to throw a little bit more existential dread at our listeners on this one. Let's do it. Uh, have you ever heard of the bald face hornet? <laughs> I've heard of it, yes. So a bald face hornet, you may have seen them. They look like yellow jackets, except they have white stripes instead of uh, the traditional yellow ones. And just here's an article I just pulled up that's called Nine Seriously Horrifying Reasons to Fear the Bald Face Hornet. <laughs> and uh, the, the number one reason that I can find is uh, they not only are they aggressive, they recognize human faces and wow. will hold a grudge against you. Wow. So if you do decide to go out and throw a rock at a bald face hornet's uh, thing, you should definitely wear like a Richard Nixon face mask or something because... They will see you and they will remember you and they will come after you just to spite you. So they're pretty bad and they're super aggressive. Uh, those don't typically make the giant ones that you do. They're, they're so aggressive. They're like solitary hornets. Right. But the, if you find the really tiny ones, like there's one that's starting on our deck that I got to take care of, but they make the really tiny ones that never get bigger than like maybe the size of a golf ball. Yeah. There's, there's some scary little beasties. This is huge. I, I'm not going to do this justice. It's probably 15 feet in the air, so it's high up. And I happened to come back for a run, and I was like, you know, cooling down, doing one of those things. You have your arms akimbo, and you just bent over. And I looked up, and I was like, dang, is that a horn's nest? It's big enough for me to spot from probably like 30 yards away. Yeah. And I, I don't know how to, it's like what you would imagine in terms of like a massive honeycomb like kind of structure. It's it is huge. And there was a lot of activity. I went up to it. And of course, like I could be on the ground underneath him because it's so high up, I could still be relatively yeah. safe, of course. I oh, man, I was so tempted to throw something at this thing, but I did not. So I'm denying it's a temptation because I knew it was strong. It was there. And then, like you said, once my landlord was like, please don't throw anything at that. I was like, oh, I really yeah. want to hit it so bad. The only time I've ever been stung by a bee was from throwing rocks at a bee's hive. So... <laughs> <laughs> honeybees like will just leave you alone they don't care if you're there as long as you don't mess with their stuff they're like whatever hornets will chase you hornets are mean little beasts yeah they don't mess around they're coming no. for you coming for you hard and like you said some of them know who you are and they know yeah. where you live they recognize your face they will land on your plate i i saw this happen one time i was sitting outside at gordon conwall in seminary at lunchtime and i had finished most of my sandwich and i had you know, like you finish the sandwich and like sometimes there's like a little piece of lunch meat or something that's left over. A hornet flew down onto my plate. <laughs> it looked at me. It made eye contact with its beady little eyes. Yeah. And then it cut a piece out of the lunch meat oh, wow. and flew away with the lunch meat piece. Like a little, like a little slice out of it. And I was like, bold. I don't, I'm not even mad. I'm just impressed. It was, yeah, it was bold. amazing. That's a baller move right there. Yeah. And I was like, I should smash it but I'm kind of terrified that it might outsmart me because it, it seems like it's smarter than I am. This is God's creation, loved ones. That hornet was literally like, see this? I'm taking this. This is mine. Like, Peace. Try to stop me. Yeah, that's great. Speaking of trying to stop things, I don't want to stop <laughs> you any longer from this amazing segue from your denial into the topic for today. Yeah, so I full disclaimer, I have not read this book yet. So uh, I do trust uh, Josh Summers, who is uh, one of the guys on the uh, Society of Reform Podcasters. He does a, a little uh, solo podcast called uh, The Baptist Broadcast. And I'm denying sort of vicariously through Josh a book that was recently published by Jeffrey D. Johnson called The Failure of Natural Theology uh, with yes. a sub uh, subtitle uh, of A Critical Appraisal of the Philosophical Theology of Thomas Aquinas. And unless Josh is out of his mind, which I've known Josh for a long time, and I don't think he's out of his mind, uh, we really could re-subtitle this of like a critical appraisal of Christian theology proper. So like, <laughs> it sounds like from this book, basically, he's like, yeah, all that like divine simplicity stuff, like, let's just get rid of that. So it's in the same line of like biblicist 
theology that brought us like eternal functional subordination or like William right. Lane Craig's theology. Like it's this sort of neo Sassinianism is what I'm calling it, where it's like this radical uh, new descriptura, but the Bible only kind of theology without any reference or respect of like the tradition or understanding. And so he, he basically goes in and he tries to, he sort of tries to paint it as though from what Josh has said, he paints it as a like natural theology is basically just Aristotelianism, like painted in Christian paint. And so he's kind of denying that whole thing. He's, he's rejecting it kind of wholesale. And Josh does a pretty good job of going through chapter by chapter. I think each, I'll, I'll, um, I'm not going to put a link in the show notes because I never put links in the show notes. But if you go to joshsummer.org, J-O-S-H-S-O-M-M-E-R.org, and his uh, his series is called The Failure of the Failure of Natural Theology, which is very clever. But uh, he goes through like two or three chapters at a time and kind of just sort of pulls out the issues. And, you know, Josh is a pastor and he wrote this to sort of prepare himself for when people in his congregation or people in his sort of circles of pastoral influence start to come to him with these questions and these theology. He did this as an exercise to sort of prepare himself. So it's well done reviews. And if Josh is not crazy, which I don't think he is, uh, this book is just bad news and it just was really not good. And the way that this kind of leads into our topic is we're starting this sort of like primer series on theology, like just systematic theology as a whole. And the first topic in any sort of systematic theology is, is talking about God, like just the, the sort of theology of God, what's normally called theology proper. And really, before you can even do that, you normally have to talk about like, well, what, what does it even mean to talk about God? How do we even, right. how do we even have discussions about God? And within that, and we'll get to some of this stuff, we're not just going to talk about talking about it, but within that, you have to talk about like natural theology. How does God reveal himself? Well, biblically, God reveals himself, not only through the pages of scripture, but also going back to adventures in Romans one, right? There we go. Through the created order, we know, we learn true things about God. God reveals himself through the created order. And it's, it's, it's not just, uh, sometimes people think of natural theology and it's like, well, you know, like if I, if I step on the sand someone can learn something about me by the impression that I leave behind. Right. You hear this, like it's the fingerprints of God are all over creation. That may be true in a certain sense, but at least when reform people talk about natural theology or natural revelation, that's not actually what we mean. We don't just mean that like, just like you can tell something about a painter by like the physical impressions. What we mean when we talk about natural theology is more like, God puts this painting, God is the painter and he puts the painting in front of you. And then God explains to you what all of the different things mean. God reveals how the brush strokes actually reveal him. It's not this thing where God is passive and absent from that. God is active in natural revelation. So we'll, we'll get into some of that, I think, as we go through this, this episode, but it's really, really dangerous. And this is part of why we're, we're starting this indefinite ongoing, probably for the rest of our lives kind of series is because it's really dangerous when we, on one hand, we divorce ourselves from what the church has said throughout the last 2000 years of Christian reflection and throughout the, the 4,000 years or, or however many years you want to say from, you know, the birth of Christ backwards to creation, the reflections of the saints in the old Testament church, we, we can't divorce ourselves from that, or we end up right. with these really screwy squirrely kinds of theologies that just don't line up with the Bible. And they don't line up, even though we might think they do, they don't line up with the Bible and they don't line up with how God has revealed himself through nature. So I'm excited that we've got a sharp guy like Josh, who's able to sort of go in through some of this stuff and to spend the time to do these critiques. So Josh is great because his, he's got a great podcast but he's also got a really active um, sort of blog platform where he reflects on a lot of stuff. So check that out. Um, again, it's Josh Summer, S-O-M-M-E-R.org. And this review series is called The Failure of the Failure of Natural Theology. And, you know, like, like I said, like we would encourage you, I would encourage you to, to read Dr. I don't know if it's Dr. Jeffrey Johnson's book. I would encourage you to read it, but don't read it as a blank slate. Right? When you go into any book, whatever it is, you shouldn't just pick up a book, whether it's by Michael Horton or by Doug Wilson. And everybody knows that I'm not a big fan of Doug Wilson. You shouldn't just go into it with the assumption that everything this person says is orthodox or everything this person says is unorthodox. You should go into it understanding who that person is and what what kinds of things you're likely to encounter. And part of preparing for reading a book like The Natural 
uh, the failure of natural theology is to do a little bit of homework by reading things like Josh's review or reading other kind of critiquers reviews or reading positive reviews, because you have to understand when you're going in sort of where that person stands and what their kind of overall program is. Cause Jeffrey Johnson is trying to advance a particular kind of theology. It'd be like if you picked up a book on the Trinity written by Owen Strahan or, or Wayne Grudem, you should go in with a little bit of your guard up realizing like not everything they say is going to be heretical or unorthodox, but realizing a lot of what they say is going to be dangerous or iffy or questionable. Um, so I would just encourage you to check out his blog, check out the podcast for sure. If you're a subscriber of the mega feed, you're already getting all of his audio content, but um, yeah, it's just, the book looks like it's really bad news. That's solid. I like it. Solid denial and solid segue. Yes. That was a two yeah. for one. It was a two for one. Yeah, that was beautiful. And so as you said, well, part of what we want to talk about in this episode is kind of giving this primer, this approach, a little prolog- prolegomena to theology proper. So I think what people are going to hear us talk about is both around that topic, but also why it's important. So let yeah. me give you like my hypothesis, like my thesis up front for when I think about this. And then we can kind of deconstruct that and go in lots of directions and get us in a solid footing for this episode and the ones that will follow. But here's how I think about it. Accurate divine ontology, and we'll, we'll define some of these words, but stick with me for a second. You know these words. Accurate divine ontology leads to accurate understanding of divine economy. It's getting more fun all the time, which leads to accurate interpretation of the scriptures, which leads to empowered, grace-filled Christian life. Yeah. So in other words, all of this theology, starting with who God is, understanding his ontology, that's like the metaphysics concerned with nature and relations of being. I know this sounds like super heady. It's not meant to be. These are just words to help codify a systematic way of thinking about things so that we start in the right place, so that we end in the right place. And all of these things are really what Paul expresses in all his epistles, all his writing, where when he's moved to doxology, it's starting with this ontological understanding of who God is, which leads us to understand the economy of God. And by, of course, economy, we just mean kind of the responsibilities, the way that things work within a system. And then it leads us to accurate interpretation of the scriptures. And then it leads us to this kind of amazing Christian life in which we're worshiping God, understanding him as he's disclosed himself to us, and that we are also serving him in a way that brings him honor and is for our good. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I want to read a little bit here from, uh, this is from volume two of uh, Theoretical Practical Theology which is uh, written by Petrus von Maastricht. They only have two volumes out. I know the third one's coming out soon. I'm, I think I feel like it's probably a four volume set total, but this is the theology proper set and it's called faith in the triune God. And so uh, Van Maastricht here says uh, when he's starting to talk about actual divine attributes, he's getting into like the, the what of God. He says the first theorem or the first uh, thesis, whatever you want to say, therefore the first theorem of this chapter The preliminary theorem, as it were, should be that the very essence of God, what it is in itself, is inaccessible to our intellect. And so you might hear that and feel like, okay, well, if it's inaccessible to our intellect, then what benefit can it be? And what what Van Masters actually goes to, to pains to explain is that the fact that it's inaccessible to our intellect is actually for our benefit. Right. Obviously, like God is incomprehensible because God is incomprehensible. Like it's not like God chose to be incomprehensible. It's just a, it's just a function of the finite trying to comprehend the infinite and the infinite trying or the infinite revealing himself to the finite. But he goes through and he has these different, uh, you know, it's called theoretical practical theology. So he goes through and explains, like, what's the practical import of this? And so he breaks it into a few different things. The first practice of, of this theorem constrains fleshly curiosity, right? The fact that we acknowledge that God is inaccessible to us, to our intellect, and not inaccessible in that we can know nothing, but inaccessible in that we recognize there are there are valid creaturely limits to what we can know, that constrains our fleshly curiosity, right? He says it it encourages modesty, right? So there's all these different things it does, and it's important for us to sort of like start with that premise that God is inaccessible to our intellect, right? right? It's not, even though God reveals himself 
through nature. He's active in revealing himself through that which is created. If you look at Romans 1, which I'm sure either today or through part of the rest of the series, we'll get there. But if you look at Romans 1, God manifests himself, but it's not a manifestation that reveals really a lot about God. We know that he's powerful, he's almighty, and he's the creator. Like Those are the three big things that are listed there. But but apart from those things, we don't get a lot from natural theology. Um, it takes God to not only reveal us through natural theology, but then to take that next step to reveal through special revelation who he is. And there's this phrase that was, was popular, ironically, I think it was made most popular by uh, Thomas Aquinas himself, which is who Johnson sort of puts in the crosshairs. And this is a very common scholastic saying. It's like a slogan. Um, and it's, I'm going to butcher the Latin because I'm not great at Latin, but it's Theologia Adeo Docator, Deum Docet et Ad Deum Ducet. And what that means is theology is taught by God, it teaches God, and right. it leads to God, right. right? So so we're not doing this. Theology can become this, and it never should, but it can become sort of this intellectual exercise that doesn't have any sort of like piety behind it. There's no piety that's brought forth, but this, this threefold uh, sort of like understanding of why we do theology is theology is taught by God, right? That's the first point. God has to be the one that teaches theology because God has to be the one who reveals himself. It also teaches God, not meaning that somehow like it educates God himself, but God is the subject of the teaching. God is the subject of the course as it were, right? So biology, the, the bios, the living matter is the, the course. Physics, it, phys, the physical world is the course. Um, theology, God is the subject of the course of learning. And then it leads to God. And that last part is really important as, as we embark on this sort of like indefinite project here. We have to understand that the whole point of doing theology is not just to know more about God. It is to know more about God. But it's to know more about God in order that we may love and serve and glorify and make him known more. There has to be that, right. that practical piety that flows out of it. Otherwise, it's just this vain sort of like self-aggrandizing knowledge puffs up kind of exercise that we really shouldn't, we shouldn't spend our time on that. If theology is going to just be that for you, then just go do something else with your time because that's actually going to be damaging to you in the long run. Yeah, that's exactly right on because it's almost as if God has designed purposefully natural revelation to be incomplete. So even as you said, Romans 1 speaks about that natural revelation as revealing his eternal power and divine nature, but says nothing of, of course, his salvific role of his personhood as savior. And this is something altogether separate. So it's purposefully incomplete. And I like what you said, because it, at the same time, like we're kind of confronted by two different things that we hold in tension. One is that we know that we cannot know everything about God, that our knowledge itself, even as we speak, is woefully incomplete. It's like seeing in 2D when God is so much more than that. Right. So we know there's a gap and we acknowledge that to begin with. And yet God still challenges us, commands us even to know him experientially to undertake his teaching. One of the things I think about is, I was, was, believe it was A.W. Tozer who at one point wrote that as he was learning Shakespeare, that he would spend time on his knees praying that God would be his teacher in that discipline. And what I appreciate about that is everywhere we should be looking for God to be our teacher in every subject, right. because this is what he does. And he definitely wants to do this for his children, to teach, him, teach them about himself through the scriptures which he's given. And the reason why we can't shy away, we can't just fall underneath this rock and get buried of, oh my goodness, God is too big to know, and so therefore I don't want to cause myself any kind of error. So I just need to back away slowly from any kind of knowledge because I don't want to presume too much. The reason why that is just not an option is because if you open up the scriptures, if you read just the first sentence of the scriptures, we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The very first verse in the Bible, we're confronted with the necessity of the interpretive priority of theology proper. That is answering the that and what of God, who God is, what you just said, and to account for this economy of the Trinity that is answering the that and the what God does. So like how would we even understand the meaning of quote unquote God in that verse? Uh, does the plural form of God in the Hebrew text Elohim and the singular verb created 
hint at the plurality of persons in the Godhead or not? How are we to understand the meaning of the word created? See, like the thing is, we take for granted that this text has all these things which we just like impound automatically and without thought often into our own theological structure. But the, the thing is, you've created a theological structure. So right. let's do it rightly and let's be thoughtful about it. And so this might be like an introduction for some or just a rehearsal for others. It doesn't really matter because what we're really after here is understanding God rightly from the beginning. That's the theology proper because that really is the first domino to fall in, all, in our life as Christians and in our thought process as we're constructing this worldview. You and I have said before, the Christian life is a bike. And of course, bikes have two pedals. One of those pedals is orthodoxy, right thinking, which leads to the second pedal, orthopraxy, which is right living. You have to have them both. Otherwise, you'll just end up like, I don't know, one pedaling a bike in like a massive circle, which will make you like a fool and won't get you nowhere. Yeah. So I think a good place for us to start, you know, I mean, we've already started, but a good place for us to continue to start <laughs> is to sort of talk about what it means for us to talk about God in the first place. Because one of the things I don't want to get too hung up on this, this um, Jeffrey Johnson book, but one of the, one of the issues that's happening in theology in, in Christian theology as a whole, whether it's this sort of denial of natural theology or denial of classical theism that that's resulting in sort of these errors where people deny immutability or they deny, you know, uh, impassibility or EFS, which we've gone into at length is there's this understanding that somehow people think, and I don't think they have, most people would not say it explicitly, but there's this sort of understanding that like, we can talk about God in human language and somehow our human language can fully and completely describe God. And the error to use some technical terms is the error is that uh, we're trying to use univocal language of God rather than uh, what classically has been understood, whether it's Aquinas or Calvin or Owen or Turretin, or really just, just Christian theology as a whole is that we speak about God in analogical language. And so what that means is that univocal language means that there's enough similarity between two things that you can use a single word to describe it. And that word has only one definition to describe both things. So um, for example, I might describe, um, I might describe the beer that I have in my glass now as liquid. And then I would describe the beer that Jesse has in his glass or whatever Jesse has to drinking. I'm assuming it's beer because of the color, uh, not because anyway, um, I could also say that that's liquid. And when I say that, I mean exactly the same thing when I say liquid between both things. I'm talking about a particular arrangement of atoms and a certain density versus volume. There, there's technical definitions, and I mean the exact same thing. Uh, a, an analogical uh, speech would be if I talk about the beer in my glass as liquid, but I talk about the cash in Jesse's wallet as liquid. I mean right. different things with a point of continuity. Right. The point of continuity being that the cash in Jesse's wallet is easy to be moved around. It can be used for a variety of things. It kind of, in a sense, takes the shape of what it's needed for, just like liquid in a glass takes the shape of the glass. But I'm not saying there's anything specific about the particular arrangement of atoms in the cash in Jesse's wallet. The cash in Jesse's wallet is actually a solid if I'm talking in those terms. And so when we talk about God, if we think we're using univocal or univocal language, we uh, then we're really on the wrong track. And so that that's here, here's the example I've heard. This is maybe a little bit hard to articulate. Again, it relates to that like Veritasum website I've been listening to. But if you think about what it would be like to for a two-dimensional creature or two-dimensional being to try to describe a three-dimensional thing, right? So think about a cube or a, a sphere, right? Right. Well, when we describe a sphere, and you can tell because of the delays in how I'm talking, I'm looking up the, the formula right now. But if you if you were to try to describe the volume of a sphere in three-dimensional terms, you would use the formula volume equals four over three, so four-thirds uh -huh. pi times radius squared or cubed, right? And that's a lot right. of math, but like that's the formula. If I was a two-dimensional person, I can't describe volume. Like that's not a concept that exists in two dimensions because volume requires that third dimension to be able to have more than just an, a surface area. So if I look up the surface area of a circle, the formula is area equals pi times radius squared, right? So right. if I was a two-dimensional two entity describing a sphere 
and you asked me a question about the volume of the sphere, the closest thing that I could tell you would be the area of the slice of the sphere that I can see as a two-dimensional being, right? So if I'm looking at a sphere straight on and I have no visibility to the depth of that sphere, what I actually see is the surface area of a, of a single sight slice of that sphere. That's what it's like for a creature to try to describe God. So we ask a question about God. We ask a question like, what is God like? What is, what is the essence of God? Our answer has to be given in creaturely terms. And in reality, even the question has to be postulated in creaturely terms. If you ask a two-dimensional character what the volume of a circle is, there should be like, a, like, a, like an error because volume is not a category that exists in that realm. Likewise, if you ask me a question about the essence of God, I have like a category error because I'm, I'm a creature. I can't even right. think about or describe or actually articulate anything about an uncreated essence. Uncreated is like an incoherent term in the creaturely realm. So, so that's the very first step we have to take is we have to get past this idea that our language about God is ever anything except creaturely language. Even the Bible's revelation is right. still God describing himself using our creaturely language. It'd be like that three-dimensional being trying to explain, explain the volume of a sphere. The only way that he's going to be able to do it is to explain the surface area of a circle. So he has to use a formula that doesn't actually describe the volume of the sphere, but it's close enough. There's enough continuity, right? It involves the radius of the sphere. It involves pi. There's enough continuity that the formula makes sense to the two-dimensional creature, even though it's not comprehensive, it's not the com completeness of it, right? So that's what we're doing. That's, that's the enterprise of theology. And if we get off on the wrong foot by trying to think that we can describe God in these univocal ways, we're going to go off the rails almost immediately. We're going to immediately start to talk about God like Jeffrey Johnson does when he says that there has to be movement in God. And somehow God is, it's not the unmoved mover, he's the self-moved mover. Well, that doesn't make, doesn't really make any sense. You can't, you can't move yourself. That's like an incoherent term philosophically. So we, we have to start off in that right place. Right. I like that. That's fair. I mean, I think that people, it's interesting. I think you either run into camps, either people will say like the fall on one side or the other, like, well, we just can't say anything about God. So I'm not going to say anything. Or right. you might have somebody that says a little bit too much right. in the sense that they think that they can have a full comprehension and it is, I like what you said, category of error is great. It's in using that example of the formulas, the formula for the surface area circle is like not even representative of three dimensions. So right. we're talking about something that's like, it's like, we just can't even get there. So it's beautiful that God condescends to us by using a language that we can understand to help explain part of who he is. And of course, it's just a part, it's not inaccurate, but we recognize that it is incomplete. Right. And also that it's like on a whole nother plane, a whole nother level, like literally. So it's not unlike that scene in the sitcom, The Office, where the boss is trying to understand what a surplus is. And one of the accountants is explaining to him <laughs> and they keep walking it down to varying degrees of simplicity. And finally he says, how about you explain it to me like I'm in fifth grade? Yeah. And really that's all we're talking about. Like the Bible is a wonderful condescension to the human condition because it's trying to help us understand God. Every bit of language there is really God being gracious to us because otherwise you just walk right over our heads and just crush us with some kind of understanding. And we'd just be either completely lost or completely destroyed quite honestly by what he was trying to explain. So it's a beautiful thing. So again, there's this like wonderful tension that we're saying God is incomprehensible and yet it doesn't remove the responsibility of for action on our part to understand him because we cannot worship that which we don't at least in part understand. And God has given us enough disclosure to bring together those things in kind of a, a consummate harmony, at least now, that gives excitement for being present with him forever when we may worship him in more fullness and be fully known. And in the same way, as we live our temporal lives here on earth, we have so much in the scriptures that can give us a picture of who God is, what he has done, and what he's like, while at the same time never removing the reality that we just cannot know him fully. Yeah. And you know, it's funny that example from the office, even that is categorically not in the right place. Right. Right. Because, exactly. because we're talking about a scale, right? So um, a good example, another good example would be 
if someone were to ask a physicist, why is the sky blue? Well, they would explain it to you in terms of the property of light and frequencies and different particles in the atmosphere and how those particles, um, they, you know, they bounce at different angles. And so that filters the light to our eyes a particular way. Well, you ask a, a you know, ninth grade physics teacher, they're going to give you an answer that's on the same spectrum as that, right? They're going to tell you like, well, light, light filters through the sky at different frequencies. And so the color we see is blue. And you ask a a parent to explain to their children, they might say something like, well, it's like, it's like when you look through your sunglasses, everything looks a certain color. And so there's like big sunglasses around the world and it colors everything blue, right? All of those things are actually explaining the exact same thing on the same sort of created spectrum to varying degrees of complexity. Well, what we're talking about when we talk about explaining out what Jesse and I are trying to get at is it's not, it's not even like that. It's not right. varying degrees of complexity. Right. It's actually an entirely different language, an entirely different construct of reality and existence that that as creatures, we just can't break out of our creaturely mold, right? Even the the phrase God is simple, right? We'll get to divine simplicity. We probably won't do a full episode on it, but the God is simple. God is not composed of parts. Well, that sentence is composed of parts and each word in the sentence is composed of letters and sounds. And each of those sounds is composed of parts. Like we can't break out of that like creaturely bound existence to get past that, to describe God. Yet all of what we say about God, if it's, if it's accurately reflecting the creaturely ways that God has explained himself and expressed himself in the scripture and the creaturely ways that God has expressed himself and revealed himself through nature, all of those things are true statements. Exactly. So if I say, just to go back to the liquid liquid beer versus liquid money analogy, if I say that Jesse's cash in his wallet is liquid is a liquid asset, that's a true statement. It's not, it's not the same thing as saying the beer in my glass is liquid. It's not actually properly speaking a true statement because the money is solid. But when we're talking in this analogical sense, we're applying the language of one arena or one realm to a, a subject in another realm in a way that explains the continuity or the similarity without creating a strict identity, we're still saying true things. So when I say that God is long suffering, well, God doesn't suffer at all, right? So right. God is God is without passions. God is not cannot be made to suffer. He cannot make himself to suffer. God is not the kind of being that suffering is a category that makes sense. Yet when I say he is long suffering, what I'm saying is that in a creaturely way, in a language reflective of creatures, God is able to endure things for a long time that in sort of regular terms would be suffering, right? He endures offense to his character long suffering in order to bring about the salvation of many, right? That's in Peter when he says, you know, God is not, uh, you know, God is not slow to return in the way people call it slowness because right. God is operating in a different way. Yet when we say a, a thousand days is like a day to him and a day is like a thousand days to him, the reality is like nothing is like a day to God. God doesn't operate within time. So the concept of a day is kind of incoherent in reference to God. So we have to get that right. If we're going to do anything in theology, we have to understand, first of all, everything we say about God is anthropomorphic, right? We're, we're, com we're comfortable with talking about anthropomorphisms when we're talking about like, well, God doesn't have feathers. God doesn't have a right arm. Like God doesn't have a nose. He doesn't snort like a bull. Like we're comfortable with those analogies, those word pictures being anthropomorphic. Right. But then we get to like this topic of like God's emotions or God's suffering or God being simple. We're not always comfortable with anthropomorphisms in that. The reality is that everything we say about God, even the word God, is an anthropomorphism because what it is is it's taking this infinite reality, infinite uncreated reality, and it's translating it down into this created finite language that we as these these little finite creatures can use to describe something that's indescribable right. yet we still get a glimpse of it with this these analogical ways of speaking and that's that's important i know we're like circling on that but that if you don't get that right there's a reason every systematic theology starts with a long chapter discussing and explaining these kinds of things about God. That's why Van Maastricht starts with this theorem. The first theorem is that God's nature is inaccessible to us, right? You pick up Horton, the whole first chapter is about 
um, the stranger that we never met because he's in a totally different realm, a totally different way of existence than us. This is a common thing in theology because if you get this wrong, everything that follows about God is going to be wrong. Everything you do after that is, is going to be all messed up. So we have to land this understanding that God is not a God who can be comprehended by creatures, even though he reveals himself uncomprehensively to creatures. Right. I mean, knowledge of who God is really must condition and shape our explanation of what God does. Mm-hmm. However, I think this is the point we're trying to land on is though God reveals himself through various revelatory modalities, those various revelatory divine acts do not exhaust who and what God is. Right. So there is God who reveals himself in, for instance, the economy of the Trinity, that revelation of God, while true, is not comprehensive of who and what he is. I guess this whole episode is a little bit of kind of just like the, putting a sticker on the whole thing and saying, like, we're going to do a lot of conver- conversing about this kind of thing. We could do a whole episode where we just start every sentence like, it's like this, yeah. <laughs> or it's kind of like that. Because it's kind of like, for instance, maybe one person trying to explain snow to another person, and both these people have never heard of snow before, never yeah. seen it in person. You know, like, it's not just that we don't have the words. We don't have the worldview. We don't have the conception. We don't have the modality to explain. So you've said many times before, when we talk about, for instance, like a single essence and three persons, like we're single essence, single person. So here we are, you and I are going to talk right. at some point about the Trinity. And you might say like on the face, how ridiculous that sounds that here right. we're going to have two people converse about something, which it's not just that we're not qualified. We're not qualified from like a natural perspective to even understanding of this. So again, here we see, I just see in all of this, so much goodness and kindness of God to right. come to us as savior. And in fact, this is the way God is always interact with his people, right? Because even in the garden, in that probationary period, like we have God revealing himself, walking in the cool of the day, like where you, you want to say that's a Christophany or it's some kind of you know general theophany, like everywhere you see God revealing himself in a way that is, I'm trying to think of a way to say it that's not heretical. Like it's a cheapening way. It's right. a way that like meets us where we're at, but it's not like a full disclosure of who he is. Not only would that destroy us in, in essence, but essentially it's God just saying like, fine, like, you know, even like to Moses, I feel like it's God saying like, fine, you want to see me? Here's what we're going to do this. I'll show you my backside, but I got to hide you in the cleft of a rock. And we got to go through this process. And even that, like whatever you see or experience is like, I can't even put, it's like, as if God's like, I can't even put a percentage on what that is of me in terms of my actual essence of being, because it's just immeasurable. So all of this is just God's kindness toward us. So I just see in this, even as God relates to us, that he's so loving to reveal anything at all. It would be his prerogative to say like, listen, I gave you Romans one. I gave you natural order. That should be enough. You're held under judgment of that. It's just amazing that God would go above and beyond that. And then also, this is why we need Jesus so much because in our prayer life, in our expression of who God is and our worship of him, all these things are also equally incomplete. And so here we have somebody as it were, like a divine middleman who Jesus is to come and stand in that gap. And to essentially make us pleasing and worthwhile to the Father. Yeah. Yeah. So are you ready to be a little bit uncomfortable? Yeah, sure. I got a big smirk on my face. So if you have kids and you're not ready to explain birds and bees to kids, then maybe like, and you're listening to this, don't listen to it. Uh, So the easiest way that I can explain this is... The difference, I'm not, I'm not going to get graphic here. So you okay. don't have to like, like, don't like crush your kids' heads trying to plug their ears. I'm not going to say anything untoward here, but there's a, there's like a joke way that people explain how babies are born. Right. And they say like, well, when mommy and daddy, when a mommy and a daddy really love each other, they give each other a really special hug. And then nine months later, a baby is born. That's actually a true statement in a certain sure. sense, right? When we explain right. how a married couple come together to create a child, we don't always give them like the technical definition of that. Right. So that, that's the difference though, is that when someone explains where babies come from and they talk about like, well, there's a stork and the stork brings the baby. That story actually is intended to communicate something true about how a baby comes to be in this analogical form. I don't actually know how the analogy is supposed to work with the stork, but it's not, it's not like some story that was, it's not like a a strict fairy tale. It's not like a strict complete lie that people are trying to tell their children. They're trying to explain that there's something mysterious and unknown and hidden about how a baby is created. Right. There's actually still things that we don't understand scientifically 
about how the sexual union of a man and a woman and the, the union of a sperm and an egg, how that actually creates a baby. There's still things that science cannot properly understand and explain about that. Right. So this idea, this this language about like with this historic and the stork finds a diamond, like there's all different versions of it. There's it's trying to get at this idea that there's this mysterious reality that happens in the union of a man and a woman that somehow creates a child. That's analogical language. When you explain to a little kid that when mommy and daddy love each other very much, they give each other a special hug and then a baby is born nine months later. You're actually not using analogical language. You're just using simplified language. Right. And that's where we have to understand here. We are not talking in simplified language about God. It doesn't mean it's not true. The story about the stork, if you use it as a simplified version of how a baby comes to be, is a lie. Right. If you're using it as a way to explain a reality in this sort of symbolic, analogical way, it's actually not a lie. Right. So you could do the same kind of exercise with Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. All of those stories came to be as these sort of analogical ways to explain the reality of certain kinds of sentiments at certain seasons or certain kinds of things that happen when people give each other gifts. All of those things were created not as lies, not as simplified versions of the truth that aren't true, but as these analogs and symbols and, and mysterious representations of things that are true. And so when we're doing theology, and, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap us up here, bring this to a close on this thought, when we're doing theology, whether we're doing theology in terms of systematic theology, right, where we take all of what the scripture has said and synthesize it into a logical system that allows us to explain a particular subject about God, taking into account the whole of creation, or the whole of revelation, the whole of what the scriptures say, or whether we're doing biblical theology, or we're talking about the progression and the development of theology throughout the scripture, or whether we're doing analytical theology, where we're, we're trying to use the tools of philosophy and the tools of analytical philosophy, particularly to explain something about God or natural theology, all of the different kinds of theologies, right? What we're trying to do is we're trying to bring to bear what God has revealed to us, and we're trying to explain it in creaturely analogical language, at least when you're doing theology right, creaturely analytical or analogical language that is able to actually communicate truth about God analogically to creatures. That's what theology is. It's not trying to, when it's done right, it's not trying to so, sort of push past the creature creator creature distinction to get at the bare essence of God. That's not what we're trying to do. Some theology seems to try to do that, right? There are theologians out there that think we can sort of like shove our way past the creature, the creator creature diff, you know, distinction that somehow scripture pulls us into the actual essence of God, where we can describe and explain the actual raw essence of God. That's not a reformed theology. It's not a Lutheran theology. It's not even an Arminian theology or a Roman Catholic theology. It's not a Christian theology at all that does that. That's a, that's a different kind of theology that actually conceptualized God as a creature rather than as the creator. Uh, it's not that we, it's not that those theologies somehow actually pull us past the creature creator distinction. It's that they pull God past the creature creator distinction and bring them down to our level. And that's not what we're doing with analogical language. We're recognizing that God in his essence is inaccessible to our intellect, yet he has made himself known by accommodating himself in these analogical anthropomorphic ways to our intellect. And that's that's what theology is. That's the essence of what it is to do a reformed biblical theology is to recognize that God is revealing himself to us in ways appropriate to our capacities. Right on. This is just like the a, beginning. I need like a water after that. You should. You really need to take a sip of that liquid beer that's in your cup. It's true. Listen, this is just the beginning, loved ones. So we're going to get started on this thing that will just take us until we die. And we hope that you'll join us in that journey. And if you'd like to join us, actually, speaking of joining us, one of the things you can do is if you just head on over to the interwebs, whatever your favorite browser is, and you type in reformbrotherhood.com, there's a little link in the upper right-hand corner. It's the link called Join the Brotherhood. This is my favorite link on our website because once you click that link, there's a nice little banner that comes up and says, the Reformation just got a whole lot better. That's my favorite my I know. favorite thing on our website. I love it. And there's actually seven things that you can do. So if this has been helpful to you, 
if you've been tracking with us for a while, there's seven little suggestions of things you can do. You can do any one of these or all seven things like just subscribe to the podcast. If you're not subscribed, why are you not? I presume you are because you're getting us jammed in your ears right now. Or you could go to our little store and you could purchase an item of which we get some of that, the proceeds back and that's used to support the podcast. Or you could become a Patreon donor. And I want to say a particular word of thanks to Brother Chris, who joined us this week as a Patreon subscriber. If you're wondering, how is it that Tony and Jesse's voices sound good when it sounds like their voices probably aren't that good in person? How is it that they have all this web hosting? How is it that everything is delivered on time and sounds so great? Well, that's because all these things cost money and there are many who have given a little bit and it's added up to a lot so that we can continue to provide this free of charge, which it will always be. So thanks to Brother Chris and all the other Patreon subscribers, but also thanks to everybody in the Reformed Brotherhood, all our brothers and sisters who have come alongside and are tracking with us. So I'm saying go check out the website. If you haven't been there in a while, go check it out. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that uh, we've mentioned a couple of times now in the last uh, week or so is uh, because we've got such generous uh, listeners who have stepped up and provided a way for us to pay the bills so we don't have to impoverish, impover, create an impoverished family. I don't know. What's the, what's the verb form of that? That was fine. That was great. Impover. I don't know. Because we, uh, we don't have to pay for it out of our pockets, uh, which we don't always have the freedom to do. Uh, we've got such generous listeners. We actually have a little bit extra that has come in now. So beyond just paying our bills, there's a little bit more coming in. And one of the things we're doing to sort of say thank you and also to just sort of get good resources out there, each each month roughly, we're going to be giving away a book of some sort. So another way you can join the Brotherhood that's not listed on that special Join the Brotherhood webpage is go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest. And if you go there, you're going to find one of those little modules that has the like, click here, visit this webpage, do this thing, do that thing. And if you do those things, you get entered in a contest to win a book. And so this month uh, through, uh, this is going to be the last episode before we draw a winner. Uh, you're going to have a chance to win Covenantal Baptism by Jason Helopolis, which is the most Greek name that I've ever heard in my life. Um, <laughs> and uh, you can just go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest, or you can go to reformbrotherhood.com slash 258, which is the webpage for this episode, and you'll be able to enter to win. So it's things like click on this link to open up our iTunes account. And if, Hey, well, you're there, if you happen to not be a subscriber and you want to subscribe, we're not going to, we're not going to fight you on that uh, or check out our Patreon website. So we're trying to sort of give away these resources that we think are vetted resources. We're going to be giving away, you know, uh, Reformation Heritage Books has this series of books. There's this covenantal baptism one. There's one on prayer. There's another one that we're going to be giving away for the next couple months. But then after that, who knows, maybe we'll buy a copy of the Reformation study Bible and we'll give that away. Maybe right. we'll buy a copy. And as you can tell, Jesse can tell because of where my face is. I'm just looking at books on my shelf. <laughs> maybe we're going to buy a copy of Gerhardus Voss published by reform forum, the biography right. that Danny Ellinger wrote, right? Whatever the resource is, it's going to be a good resource and it's going to be free to you because you won the contest. So go to reformbrotherhood.com slash contest or reformbrotherhood.com slash 258 for this website. You'll find the same module on both of those places. And uh, every month we're going to be giving away a different one. So for this one, uh, the drawing will happen on uh, October 10th. So when you hear this episode, it's going to be October 1st. So you have one more full week to enter that contest and then we'll switch it up to another one. So yeah. We appreciate all of the gifts that come from our listeners, all of the support that we have. Uh, like I said, it enables us to just not only just pay the bare minimum to keep the lights on and to keep the, the podcast going, but it enables us to do some things like give away some resource, some free resources and things like that. So we so appreciate the generosity of people who've, who found um, a way to do that. And that's one of the things we're committed to is we want to curate some really good resources. So we'll be partnering hopefully with publishers to do that. Now, we'll be contributing our own in that way to try to make sure we can get some good resources out to you. There's just no excuse not to go to reformbrotherhood.com backslash contest and try it out. This is a book about covenantal baptism. I just myself registered to win. <laughs> <laughs> well, as the Presbyterian host who secretly wishes that there were two Presbyterian hosts, <laughs> I may or may not cook the books. I'm, I'm not going to do that. If Jesse wins, I'm going to throw out his yes. uh, entry. 
So Jesse can't win this contest. Tony can't win this contest. But this just goes to show how easy and simple it is. You just go to that website. There's a bunch of different ways that you can get enrolled in your chance to win. And I I wanted to try it out for myself. And I was like, oh, I actually just, I didn't actually mean to, but I was like, oh, I just, I (laughs) think I just did. Yeah. So, so I'm in the mix. So why don't you get yourself in the mix as well? Nice. Well, Jesse, I'm excited to start this series. I'm not sure how long it's going to go. I think maybe uh, this might be our magnum opus because it's probably going to go for the rest of our lives. I don't know how long it's going to go. This might be our life's work. But uh, until next time, Jesse, when it is our life's work, (laughs) honor everyone. Love the brotherhood.